Uh, I don't know if all of you know, we, we have a church garden down here uh, that's mostly vegetables and uh, mostly distributed to the food bank and whoever else uh, might need or want. I, uh, this last spring, I pulled rank as senior pastor, okay? Um, for the benefit of my marriage, quite frankly. Um, not the church. Um, uh, I asked if, if my wife could have one row to herself in the, in the vegetable garden. Um, and so Brenda's been doing that. She's been going down there and, and picking vegetables and every day bringing home ginormous squash and zucchini and cucumbers. The other day she said, I'm going to make a peach pie. I said, is it going to have squash in it? <laughs> you get the idea. All of it reminds me of how we both grew up. We both grew up in a very similar way. We not only are both from the same small central Texas town, we actually grew up about two blocks from each other. And our parents uh, were both very similar in many ways. Um, our parents were both about the same age. They were both um, her parents and my parents, kind of that classic Depression era, World War II generation. They both of our parents came from farming backgrounds. They were pretty similar temperament and outlook. And both our parents kept big vegetable gardens when, when we were growing up. And I think that's part of it for Brenda, to, to not have a vegetable garden or something Life is somewhat uncentered and not quite normal if you're not growing vegetables. And that's just how it was when we were growing up. And this time of the year, when I was a kid, the, the end of May, June, and early July was one of my more favorite times of the year. School was out and lazy summer days just stretched before you and every day had the promise of maybe some new and unexpected adventure. In the evenings, we would eat supper almost entirely out of that vegetable garden. Uh, we had air conditioning in our house, but it was one window unit next to my dad's bed, okay? <laughs> so the rest of the house wasn't air conditioned and kitchen table was by the back screen door. And we would eat very late in the evening, right when the sun was going down, and you'd hear the tree locusts in the baseball park and all the kind of summer evening noises. And we would eat squash and zucchini and cucumbers and okra, always okra, uh, black-eyed peas, string beans, uh, cantaloupe or watermelon for dessert. Sometimes my mom would make uh, cooked meat, but you know, sometimes she would severely overcook a pork chop, in my opinion. But uh, most nights were, were meatless. We just ate out of that vegetable garden. Well, kind of given that background, uh, when Brenda and I were a, a few years later, a young married couple, and we're living in the city and in a one-bedroom apartment on the third floor and trying to figure things out. One 
One day I was at HEB and I found fresh black-eyed peas at HEB, a rarity, okay? And I got excited, took those home. Brenda was excited, home being, again, our one-bedroom apartment. And so she cooked those black-eyed peas, okay, with some bacon and a little bit of garlic and some cornbread. And I had a college buddy, a single guy that would come over to our place pretty often and eat with us. And I called him. I said, come on over. We're having a great supper. So he came over. Well, this friend of mine uh, was uh, maybe the second most picky eater I've ever met in my whole life. And he grew up different from us. He, he grew up a city kid, uh, upper class, and his mother rarely cooked. And so they would just go to Luby's almost every night. And so he literally was a picky eater. He literally, literally would just pick what he wanted to eat going down the cafeteria line. And he didn't grow up with that, if you don't eat all your peas, you can't go outside kind of upbringing, right? So he comes over and he says, what are we having? I said, black eyed peas, cornbread. What else? <laughs> I said, that's it. It's, that's it. Oh. Well, he didn't really like black-eyed peas and kind of picked up the cornbread, and it was a very disappointing evening for him. Brendan and I are practically oblivious, okay? We're just black-eyed peas and cornbread, and, and we're into it, okay? And I think it was about black-eyed peas and cornbread, but it was about so much more. It was about being homesick. It was about how we were raised. It was about our parents' generation. It, it was kind of about just everything. In, in, the, in the Bible, bread has that same evocative quality to it, that sometimes bread is about bread, and sometimes in the Bible, bread is about just so much more. Maybe in ways that are hard for us to understand. Now, in those days before refrigeration, in those days before interstate travel and being able to get a California iceberg lettuce three days after it's picked, back in the days when there's no HEB, much less curbside service, back in the days when starvation was a possibility, famine was a possibility. If you had bread to eat, bread meant that your crops succeeded and you're not going to starve. Bread meant that the wheat was not ruined by some early spring hailstorm or eaten up by an unexpected invasion of locusts. If you had bread, that meant you got the harvest in safely before raiders came and tried to steal it from you. If you had bread to eat, that meant that probably all your other crops succeeded too. And, and you've got grapes for wine. And you've got olive oil for everything. And that we're, we're going to be okay. That God is good and and we are blessed, and there is joy to be had 
and we're going to be okay for the coming year. Which is why I think throughout the Bible, the bread is used both literally and figuratively and metaphorically. The people are out in the wilderness and they're hungry and Jesus gives them bread. They need bread. But then he talks about being the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm what you need. You're going to be okay because I'm the bread of life. In Exodus Moses says, it's the bread of heaven. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The bread of heaven, that there's something, there's something theological about bread, as well as bread just being about bread. My mother had a theory about why there is that tradition that if you eat black-eyed peas on New Year's, it's good luck. Okay? She said that and she, she, her daddy was a sharecropper, and they barely made it. They were always about this far from having to find a boxcar on its way to California. And she said one year, the government came in and made them plant black-eyed peas instead of cotton to re-nourish the land. And she said, that was a terrible year. And, and she said, if we hadn't had those black-eyed peas, I don't know if we'd have made it that winter. And so her theory was that if on New Year's, if you've still got black-eyed peas to eat, you might just make it. You might just make it until spring gardens can be planted. Now, in other parts of the country, black-eyed peas are held in low esteem. They're considered cattle feed by some. And so there's nothing glorious about it. It's just black-eyed peas. It's just bread. It's pretty basic. And it's a glorious gift from God that means so much more. The Israelites have been in Egypt. They got to Egypt because they ran out of bread in Israel. There was a drought. And so they went looking for bread. And they end up becoming slaves in Egypt. Walter Brueggemann in his book, The Journey to the Common Good pushes pretty hard on the, the economic nature of their slavery. That they are bound into this empire of building bigger and bigger monuments and pyramids and great armies and the wealthy keep getting wealthy and these poor people, they have to work hard and then they have to work harder and there's not enough bricks and there's more bricks to be made and life keeps getting worse and they in this horrible, degrading cycle of working and working and going and going and pushing and pushing and life just keeps getting worse and they cry out to God and, and God rescues them from that economic system, Brueggemann says. That this is not God's will for them. God's will is that you have enough to eat and you have enough to share. And you're in communion with your neighbors. That you're in a community that takes care of one another. And it's about not about this anxiety of we have to have more and we have to have bigger and we have to have all this other stuff. That Sabbath, Sabbath means that God is so good that I can rest every once in a while. That it's not all up to me. 
that there is a God who is dependable and it, it might not be everything I want, but it'll be everything I need. God brings them out of this oppressive system and leads them into the desert. And in the desert, you can't plant wheat. Where are we going to get our bread? What's going to happen to us? The desert is demanding and dangerous and they begin to complain to one another. And Moses, speaking for God, says, I'll give you bread. And the next morning there's this, this dew, this manna, these flakes. It always kind of reminds me reading the Bible story that maybe it looked kind of like oatmeal flakes. Uh, whatever it is, you can make bread out of it. This place that produces no bread by some miracle God helps them to create bread. What is it, they say? And in Hebrew, mana means, what is it? What is it? That's what mana is. What is it? What is it? What is this thing? It's the bread of heaven, Moses says. What is it? It's what you need to get through the desert time in your life. What is it? It's God's grace. You don't believe. You don't trust. All you do is complain. I'm still going to get you through this. It's grace. It's unconditional love. It's a different way of life that depends on God, not on our own abilities, our own anxious competition. Jesus says, why do you worry about bread? Jesus says, why do you worry about tomorrow? That each day you will have what you need. We went on this mission trip to Puerto Rico. You know, I, I think God called me into the ministry because I was such a lousy Christian that without the discipline of the ministry, I don't know where I would be. And without the inspiration of being around other Christians all the time, I don't know where I would be. We go to Puerto Rico on this mission trip. There's a lady in this church that we're connected with, a real core member of that church. She lost her house during the hurricane. And I didn't quite understand the story. Somehow it fell between the cracks. FEMA didn't really take care of it. The local government didn't take care of it. Her church didn't have the resources to take care of it. But her house was destroyed. But she said, I just, I just prayed. I just knew that somehow God would, would figure this out for me. And a year and a half later, our, our mission group showed up these little girls that don't weigh 90 pounds are out there working like crazy to restore the foundation. And she just kept saying, I knew God would send me what I needed. And I'm like, wow. Could I have that kind of faith? Well, I know that I, and somehow in God's mystery, I can't explain it. It's mana. What is it? I don't know. But somehow I'm going to be okay. Somehow, even in this forbidden desert place, somehow, even in the worst challenges of my life, that God 
is going to take care of me. She sent me some pictures the other day of another group, a local group, helping to set the foundation to her house. And she just continues to praise God. Somehow, God's going to do this. I think that's what bread means in the Bible. We take this bread, it's simple, it's common, and it's glorious, and it means so much. No coincidence, no accident that Jesus takes bread to represent the most fundamental and basic and essential things that we need to understand. He takes bread, he blesses it. This isn't just bread, this is everything. This is my body. This is my forgiveness. This is my power in your life. This is me that I can overcome all the things that the world thinks can't be un- overcome. And this bread is, is forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, power, all we need for today. fruit of the field, the fruit of the vine, the wine, which Jesus blesses, which Jesus shares. This is not just wine. This isn't just something to drink. There's something going on here. Some mystery, some sacramental quality that involves forgiveness and grace and joy. My blood poured out for you and for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus prays. Jesus prays and now we pray. Almighty and gracious God. Help us in this moment of rest. This Sabbath morning. To remember. To celebrate. To find our our faith and confidence and trust in you. As you bless us all the time. We humbly ask for your blessing this morning. Your blessing upon this food and drink. That we might receive this mystery. That we might receive your Holy Spirit. That we might receive your forgiveness that we might receive all that we need for the joy of this day. We thank you and lift our prayers up to you by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Will those who are assisting with communion please come forward. Sometimes black-eyed peas are just feed for the cattle. And sometimes it's just about everything. And sometimes bread is just flour. And sometimes it's how we know we're going to be okay. 
It's going to be all right. Grace. I invite each and every one of you to come and receive this mystery, this sacrament, this grace. As in joy, we come before our Lord and Savior.